questions. Mr. Scott Mardis. Oh, yes. Yep. Yes. 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 He's yeah, on Scott, the... yeah, he may know more about the Lake Champlain monster and Loch Ness uh, research than anybody else I've known. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Scott, how can I describe him? He walks that fine line between skeptic and believer perfectly mm -hmm. and manages to stay friends with everybody in every camp. And that's that's an achievement in this genre. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. <laughs> you know, if anything, that's the one thing I'd like to learn a little more from him. Or some of those um, those uh, tightrope walking skills, which are very admirable. So right. um, I wanted to, to just catch up with you and chat with you. I am. Um, I'd heard, heard of you before, of course I'd heard of you, but I actually had a book of your brothers. Right. And that's how I first came to know the name. And I saw uh, Small Town Monsters, Beast of Whitehall, etc. And I just thought, well, okay, this is great. Uh, this gentleman knows a lot about this. And of course, there's the book with yourself and uh, Robert Bigfoot Encounters in New York and New England. Right. Um, from 2008. And I thought, okay, this is, this is a great chance to catch up on that subject. Not a lot of people think about there being a Bigfoot presence in the Adirondacks or in New York. State. I mean, why would there be Bigfoot there? Surely this is the, um, you know, this is Washington State, Pacific Northwest. What is it doing there? So how about just filling us in a little bit on your on your start, what intrigued you, you know, what brought you into the, the Bigfoot genre in your part of the country? Right. Uh, as you said, uh, when you watch the documentaries of that time period back in the 70s and so forth, they kind of looked at Bigfoot phenomena as being Pacific Northwest in the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, generally, California, uh, Washington State, Oregon, up into British Columbia, Canada, that, that general location. So living in New York State, uh, we had a major incident here back in 1976, which involved several law enforcement agencies. And so that got us to look at uh, New York State a little more closely. And back in 1978, there was a book written by John Green, uh, Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us. Mm -hmm. And in it, I think they logged something like uh, 11 or 14 cases in New York State and a, a few in Vermont. And so we basically put that under a microscope and began researching and we found out that there were actually hundreds in this region. And the, the history of it is what's so rich. You can go back to the Algonquin and the Iroquois and their legends of stone giants or giant men of the mountains, the Kokoshi, the, the uh, Wendigos, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the um, wild men of the 1800s. Uh, so there's a real rich history in the Northeast that was often underlooked and, and overlooked. And so we were able to, to sort of uh, delve into that and bring it to the forefront. Well, I, I, it's interesting to me. Now, I'm currently writing Beasts of North America. Beasts of Britain was my first book. I'm looking at the various beasts around North America's geographical area, but of course, the U.S. as well. And it, it's shocking. I mean, it's really shocking the widespread presence of Bigfoot sightings, for want of a better word. Now, are you, are you, are you involved in, in Bigfoot research just in that particular area? Is that your area of interest or do you look at sightings across the country? Because one of the things 
uh, that's, that astonished me when I visited the US for the first time in 2018 and, and took nine or 10 different flights through different areas that I did not perceive to be um, well, well forested. And as I was flying into Atlanta at some point and landing, I just look over this sea of trees that stretched on as far yeah. as the eye could see and just look, this is Atlanta. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you could hide anything in that little, as it was described to me by somebody in that state, that little stretch of forest. Um, and of course, in the UK, we're not really used to, to, um, to forest on that sort of magnitude. Now, when you talk about the Pacific Northwest and you consider that to be real pristine, forest well then what's atlanta you know what's what are the what's new york state right. what's um uh new jersey we never think of those places as being heavily forested and yet wow you know it's, it's i was in vermont i was in new york state for a little while too on the lake champlain side and even around these areas just countryside as far as i could see so what's what's not to like about the bigfoot phenomena i suppose being widespread yeah yeah no you're absolutely right uh you you know just 10 miles south of albany is a a little place called kinderhook new york Mm -hmm. that's where bruce hallenbeck had been researching the kinderhook creature and you think my goodness albany new york and you know it's only 10 miles from albany and yet it looks a lot like white hall because there's just so much forest land uh the adirondacks is a huge uh, amount of, of, of uh, forest land and it's so much so that uh, a while back when the two prisoners escaped from Dannemora prison became a very famous case over here uh, they were on the loose for a, just over two weeks and really what got them caught even though we had modern technology of uh, tracking dogs and helicopters and infrared and you know, information, social networks, everything out there trying to capture them. What really got them caught were their own mistakes. They were in areas that were so primitive that uh, they could have easily, if they hadn't made mistakes, maintained being hidden. Mm -hmm. So it just goes to show you how dense some of that area is and how even using the most modern technology, we really needed them to to goof up to catch them. And that's an encouraging thought um, for the criminals, at least. Uh, yeah. uh, I suppose what got them caught is the same thing that got them caught in the first place. Yeah. Like a preparedness Absolutely. and <laughs> thinking out the uh, escape route and the crime. Now, I mean, in regards to your research, obviously you've been at this a long time. Uh, I know that you worked with Joe Zazinski a bit at Le Champlain also, is that right? Um, yeah. Over the years. It just seems that the area that you're in, I spent a little time there, it, it's, it's rich with sightings. And that whole um, borderline East Coast, I even talked to a, a famous, I forget his name now, who's a head of a paranormal society in the US uh, for, or some sort of fortune society. Anyway, I forget his name. He's in uh, New Hampshire. And he took us to his house and described to us but he could only uh, think of it as being a tattle worm sighting, a long, very black-like, snake-like creature that shot off and burrowed into the side of a, a railway siding back in the 70s. He was 
pretty matter of fact about it. I mean, yes, he's a fortune researcher. He's into the paranormal and the supernatural and the rest of it. You could say he's got a vested interest in the strange and unusual. But, you know, this was a long, long time ago when I, I guess his interest was somewhat smaller. And that's something I've never heard of. I mean, surely the tattoo woman, this is a, this is a Swiss phenomenon in Europe. Right? Um, so I'm, I'm very interested to know, from your experience anyway, are there other things in this area, apart from Champ or um, you know, the Beast of Whitehall or similar um, other Bigfoot and lake monster-like sightings. Are there, are there, are there cryptids there? Certainly. Um, John Keel, who wrote, you know, the Mothman prophecies and, uh-huh. you know, uh, various paranormal and 14 books, was a, a fellow New Yorker. And he talked about, uh, I think it was the Silver Lake monster and, and mm. all sorts of uh, various creatures. And he talked about the bilious boogeymen of the Adirondacks. And he said that Plattsburgh, New York, which is, you know, a couple hours from here, uh, was a window area. That's what he called it. And those Mm -hmm. were areas that different types of 14 phenomena would occur, whether Uh it be of a cryptozoological nature or a ufological nature. Um, Very interesting uh, phenomenon. I got great respect for John Keel. Uh, He and Brad Steiger had researched this type of phenomena back in the 60s and early 70s, back before a lot of people were really aware of the, just how layered some of these reports and some of this phenomena is. Mm -hmm. And then we got a chance to see that firsthand with some of the reports over here in New York, where they look like typically it may be a UFO phenomena or maybe a creature phenomena. And then when you start peeling away the layers, uh, you start to see a pattern uh, where there's different phenomena occurring here. And we'll okay. see this over and over again. So the, the idea of a UFO flap, uh, uh, a creature, a Bigfoot flap, sometimes it might be more of a paranormal outbreak than just a specific type of phenomena. Uh-huh. So I mean, what's your opinion on that? As somebody that's really been looking for an undiscovered ape, uh, or something of, of that, that that kind in North America, do you think there's there's a crossover, or do you think that perhaps some environments are just um, conducive to a variety of hidden um, phenomena, uh, for want of a better word, and UFOs and Bigfoot and orbs and lake monsters? Perhaps there's just good topography to to hide certain things that would like to stay out of sight. Does that ring true to you, or do you think there's something a little more uh, paranormal going on here in general? I I think the slogan that is kind of attached to me is, there's something else going on here. (laughs) And that seems to be what comes up a lot. And I'll tell you an incident. We had the uh, creature outbreak on Hebert Road in Whitehall, New York, back in August of 1976. Mm -hmm. And in it, we had several police agencies who had encountered a a creature out on Hebert Road. Initially, uh, I'll give you a brief synopsis. You Uh had three teenagers and they sighted a a creature. They sped into town. They alerted the, the authorities. Authorities responded. We had Washington County Deputy Sheriff. We had uh, Whitehall police out there. We had uh, New York State troopers. So they all converged. And over a week-long period from August 
4th to September 1st, we had maybe as many as, you know, 12 to 14 separate sightings and maybe even more. So uh, of this large creature, the creature was described as being about seven to eight feet tall, having uh, dark hair, uh, having red eyes, mm-hmm. walking bipedally, you know, two legs mm-hmm. uh, swinging its arms and making a sound like a woman screaming or a pig squealing. seemed to be uh, very much afraid of light. So, you know, initially that was reported in the Post Star, which is a local paper in New York, and it was reported as officers track creature. Mm. Well, on the Vermont border, they talked about UFOs connected Uh with the sighting as well that was not even mentioned in that. And it come to find out that this was during a major UFO flap in which UFOs were sighted all in this region, all throughout this region. So we know that that was layered in. It was a major UFO flap that went all the way down to to New York City area. So uh, you also start to layer in these big bird or pterodon or, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, pterodactyl sightings. Uh And we, we had a sighting of that as well. So you just don't know what to make of all this. So my job as a researcher is to record this as accurately as possible mm-hmm. because later on it may form a pattern and it may start to show something that we may have overlooked. Now, one aspect, <clears throat> excuse me just a second. That's okay. I'll take an opportunity <clears throat> for one of those too. <laughs> now, one aspect that uh, initially we didn't understand was that when I interviewed Bob Martell, who was the Whitehall police dispatcher. It used to be the greatest job ever. You'd be overnight at the police station, usually watch TV, answer a couple <laughs> calls. Terrific job. Well, Bob said that one night, and he said he could never remember whether it was a week before or a week after the Avia Road creature sightings. Uh-huh. There was a sighting of something landing on someone's lawn in the town of Whitehall. Wow. Seems completely absurd because we're not talking about a rural area. We're talking about houses everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it was on the avenues. And so I was able to confirm through the witness that something came down and landed. It left a circular swirl in the grass. And then it took off. Well, Bob Martell and Police Sergeant Wilfred Goslin <clears throat> at the time, they decided they're only two streets over. So they drove right to the spot and they talked with her. And she didn't want to, you know, go further with the investigation, but she confirmed that something landed. And Bob said there was this circular patch of matted down grass. And he said he reached down and he could still feel the heat coming off of the grass. Wow. So we look at this incident happening in conjunction with the UFO flap in this area and the creature outbreak all occurring with the big bird sightings. And you start to see these layers that John Keel and Brad Seiger had talked about back in the 60s. You start to see it firsthand. Um, So turns out that there was a similar incident like this that happened in 1973 Mm -hmm. at the La Cabana restaurant on Glen Lake, New York. And what had happened is Jack Bergeron was the owner of the restaurant. And he had been away. And when he returned, there was a circular patch in the of uh, dirt that had been swirled in the parking lot of the La Cabana. <laughs> and the dirt had been thrown against the door 
of the restaurant. They had to get a shovel to shovel away the dirt. There was so much dirt thrown there. So you try to explain that, you, you really can't. They heard mm -hmm. strange noises and all this, and you think, what would have landed and left that? We have no idea. But it was two concentric circles. Was Same it large, thing that was, large circles? Yeah, about uh, between, I think it was between 12 and 20 feet. Oh, well, and, quite big. And there's a, there's a famous picture of Jack Bergeron pointing to the, uh, pointing to the, object, uh, the, to the, the uh, circle in his parking uh -huh. lot. Well, come to find out, you know, you can make up uh, explanations. Well, I, I remember the most absurd one was somebody said, ah, somebody took a motorcycle and spun, mm -hmm. you know, circles. It's completely absurd. So there was a physical effect that we didn't realize. And what had happened is the hot water taps ran cold and the cold water uh -huh. taps ran hot. We couldn't explain that. And it happened and it, it stayed that way for, I think it was several weeks. Wow. And then it reverted back to normal. Now, there was a scientist I talked with, and he says, you know, that could have been an electromagnetic field mm. that had reversed the, the polarities on the, on the uh, valve. Uh -huh. And that's a possibility because that's an odd effect. That's something you can't just hoax. That's it's an actual physical. effect yeah. that something yeah. had happened there. I would assume so, that a plumber couldn't have easily just got in and changed that. You know, this is part right, of the system right. itself. It, it, I mean, it in the ordinary workings of the, that tap system, they shouldn't be able to switch. Right. It's hot to cold right. and cold to hot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I'll tell you what was fascinating is is that uh, uh, that sighting got reported. And then you start to hear other reports of similar type rings in the area that have been reported. And this is exactly the phenomenon that was reported in Whitehall at the same time, wow. except that was connected with an object landing and taking off. So you start to see these patterns form, these, these strange phenomena. And to this day, the La Cabana has, has never been ex adequately explained, mm -hmm. only that I think with the uh, added investigation that showed that the water taps had changed, indicates that that's a legitimate case. It's not somebody yes. out hoaxing. Yes, definitely. Now, let me ask you this question in regards to that. And with this convergence, this layering of different cryptid sightings and possible UFO sightings and, and the like, when people come up with explanations for it, and you must encounter this a lot. Now, I've read some of your work, read some of Robert's work, and clearly, um, there is a clinical, very objective slant on the research that you guys do. And I really like that a lot. I can't claim Thank that much myself, but um, I'm aware of my own bias, at least. I do try to work against it as far as I can. But people obviously have, in cryptozoology these days, almost a pseudo-religious belief system attached, or at least a, a philosoph philosophical belief system attached to the cryptids that they're interested in. And that definitely tends to dominate their explanation of phenomena. How do you deal with that? I mean, when you're dealing with people that want to believe sticks and stones, for example, and that little documentary that are made by Bigfoot without really checking around for tracks or hair or anything around these giant structures. How do you deal with that? Or that somebody would immediately yeah. assume that UFOs made the, you know, the circular indentations in the ground or, What's your what's your rebuttal to those types of claims, or or do you think everything's up for grabs? 
Well, uh, you make a good point. To some people, this is almost a religion. Mm -hmm. And they want to believe. They, you know, they desperately want to mm -hmm. believe. And generally speaking, when it comes to a legitimate sighting, you know, I, we classify eyewitness sighting, uh, um, track find, or mm -hmm. vocalization report. That's pretty much how we, we okay. take, in, take down the information. And, uh, you know, some people just want to believe. And you'll start to hear things like, I was pretty sure somebody was following me. Mm -hmm. I could sense something was there, but there isn't really a sighting, an actual sighting. Yet. Yeah. So they may be an incident. You take down the information, you log it, and maybe it means something later. But I don't regard that as a sighting. No. If it, when you have a sighting, it's a life changer. It's a game changer, and it's not necessarily a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Dan Gordon was a Whitehall police officer, my neighbor in White in Whitehall here, and. Uh, uh, Dan, for 22 years, he had had a sighting and couldn't talk about it because he was a police officer. And it took a long time. It was a process for him to finally come out and explain what he had seen. And he had seen an, uh, a creature cross the road in front of him, uh, a Bigfoot-type creature. Uh -huh. uh, and they were on routine patrol, he and another police officer. And they had turned around and come back into town, and the creature cr crosses the road in front of him. He gets out of his car, parks it, gets out draws his weapon, tries to follow with a flashlight, creature's long gone. Gets back in the car, his partner stayed in the car, actually swallowed his tobacco that he was chewing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it's like, that was some deer. That was no deer. I know, I know. And so both of them were just stunned by what they had seen. Uh -huh. And they couldn't talk about it for so long because of that ridicule factor. They didn't yeah. want to be known as the Bigfoot cop or whatever. So to them, they didn't want to experience this. They just happened to experience it. Uh -huh. And for them, it was a life-changing event. And it wasn't positive. It was a negative. So I look at those types of sightings with an even higher credibility mm. because it's something that they didn't want to happen. It's something that they didn't invent or try to draw parallels to. It happened to them and it changed them. I mean, I suppose you would call them antagonistic witnesses essentially the antagonistic witnesses they're unwilling witnesses starting to lose here high traffic so yeah in regards uh, to what okay. you're saying um regarding the police officers and this reticence to talk about sightings i love those antagonistic mm. witnesses mm. those witnesses that you know would rather not have seen what they saw but can cannot deny what they know to be true and that's a wonderful um right that's a really really wonderful uh thing to have as a researcher right as a researcher what, what a boon um, we, I had a witness here in the UK. And and well, he, I, I knew Dan. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, we're losing each other again. <laughs> so you, you say you knew this guy. Yeah, I, I knew Dan uh, from school. Very honest straightforward straight shooter and so 
Dan says to me one day, we're walking up the road and he goes, I want to take a polygraph. And I said, Dan, nobody's asking you to take a polygraph. And he says, I want to. And so we got in touch with, uh, uh, back then it was uh, the uh, Monster Quest show, uh, oh, Doug yeah. Hijack production. Yeah. yeah. And they had come awesome up to show. do a New York episode and they, they had interviewed uh, for their Gigano special, which had, was really the premiere of that show. That's what spawned that show. Uh -huh. Dan was interviewed. So they came back and they decided to give Dan a polygraph with a couple other people. And the polygrapher was a state polygraph expert that they used in criminal cases. And he came up and he said there was no deception with Dan Weber. Wow. This is a difficult uh, dilemma because you want to say, well, maybe they just saw animal crossed and that it was common but they didn't see it that way well no now you've got two police officers that saw the creature well maybe dan was exaggerated dan passed a polygraph and was very hesitant about even coming forward so this becomes a problem for the uh a skeptic to explain away this mm -hmm. isn't an easily explained case and it's it's one of those that's that's got high credibility and if you knew dan uh you would know that this was a real incident and that he wouldn't make something like that up. So all those uh, skeptical standby arguments you can just throw away. And so we really have to look at the information and look at the case. And it was in February of 1982. And they said that the creature was tall, slightly hunched over, swinging arms at its knees, and that it traversed the road in three steps. Classic. That is, yep, and it's the most common roadside, you know, mm. type road cross sighting. Uh, my brother is six, six one, six two, and he tried to duplicate with giant steps crossing a road that was even smaller than that main road, and he took, you know, about six steps, six mm. to seven, to get across there. So for something to cross it in three, almost brings it out of the normal human category. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it, I love that classic, the three-step, the three-step road sighting. It's always a, a signature move. And something I'm interested in asking you about, actually, when you talk about this convergence and this layering and, and just looking at the evidence as it presents itself and trying to, to honestly report it without making assumptions or, or coming to, you know, conclusions. Often I find myself as a researcher having to to justify my interest in something. So um, it's, even though I don't believe in it, it stretches the, the parameters of what I'm willing to accept. So for example, uh, I'm very comfortable with Bigfoot, not so much with Dogman. Uh, because right. for Bigfoot, I can stretch into some sort of plausible Gigantopithecus theory or Neanderthaloid you know, survivor even though there's not really much to substantiate that either. But if there's something in the fossil record that makes me feel comfortable, when you look at a dog man or a werewolf, let's be honest, uh, the werewolf rebranded is the dog man, isn't it? Um, well, what could that possibly be as a creature? Now, a lot of people immediately jump into the paranormal realm, but I'd say that's just, you know, that's just us placing a supernatural presence upon something we don't yet understand. You know, as if we mm -hmm. saw... In, in the ancient past that we were one of the people to first notice a, uh, an octopus camouflage or a squid change color or, or whatever. 
it would seem like a magical power of some kind, whilst we couldn't explain it. So is this creature, this dogman, just a creature that we can't explain? Or do you have an opinion? Does it stretch into the supernatural realm somehow? Is this just a way that we have always tried to make ourselves comfortable with that which we don't understand? Well, uh, I'll approach that from a different angle. I, I, I like the way you approach that. Um, if we look at some of these reports, uh, for instance, let's take Cliff Sparks, who had a sighting here in Whitehall mm -hmm. at his golf course back in 1975 in May. And Cliff was out on the greens, uh, you know, tending the greens at night. And he went out to green number one, which has a clump of trees next to it. Mm -hmm. And when he did, he said he drove his cart up. There was a creature standing on the green. And he said he was startled. And the dog that rides in the cart with him, which usually gets off the cart and runs around, just whimpered down and stayed right in the cart as the creature looked at him. And he said he thought the creature was as scared of him as he was of it. Mm -hmm. Now, he described this thing as being sloth-like, about seven and a half feet tall. Uh, moving sloth like he said it had hair and and uh, was was a conical shaped mm -hmm. head and long swinging arms but he also said that it had red glowing eyes mm -hmm. and when I asked Cliff about the eyes he said it wasn't reflective it wasn't like hitting a raccoon's eyes with a flashlight and getting that eye shine and I had mentioned this at a conference one time and mm -hmm. a couple of the researchers ah that's just eye shine Cliff had been around and he knew what eye shine was. He said, this was different. He says it was like, and this is an exact quote. He said, it was like short dots coming out like rays. Huh. Very unusual. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to make up a story, I'm certainly not going to say that. And yet mm -hmm. Cliff said that this was the thing that stuck with him. And he didn't go back out there at night anymore after that incident. <laughs> and this was a year before <laughs> the Bear Road incident. Wow. And Cliff was, we're talking just, you know, we're talking very close to the creature, within 20 feet of the creature. And he said that the creature was more concentrating on his dog than mm -hmm. he was on him. And he said those rays were shooting right at the dog. And, and he said the dog. Literally coming out. He said he could see like short dots they looked like. Huh. They were emanating. Now he said that the dog just slumped over the cart. Uh -huh. And he said that was completely uncharacteristic. And, uh, you know, Clifford, he never changed his tune about that aspect of the story. And that stuck with him. Mm -hmm. And he made it quite clear that it wasn't eyeshine. So when I say there's something else going on here, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. When you start to peel the layers away, you start to get this characteristic. And when you look at the literature, you will see characteristics that are reported from ancient uh, report, ancient, uh, should say, hundreds of years ago, mm -hmm. not, not that ancient, in which they'll say it had eyes like glowing embers. And it's that same, it's a different vernacular describing mm -hmm. that same phenomena. And it doesn't quite fit into what we would expect. And I think these are really important aspects to really uh, focus on and start to record so that maybe this means something down the road. I wonder, um, yeah, it seems to be an obvious place to go to, but some sort of infrared. Mm. You know, some sort night, of night vision. Some sort of night vision, perhaps. Who knows? 
I mean, it's not an original theory, of course, and many people have postulated that, I'm sure. Now, I've heard lots of tales of cryptid-like creatures having some sort of bioluminescence in their, in their eyes. Uh, the Yaoi industry is often reported as having this feature. Um, the Owl Man of Mornin here in the UK, although I'm not completely sold on that sighting, uh, based upon the possible source for it, um, uh, would be, I, I think, personally, Tony Doc Shields, um, you know, the famous conjurer who's so involved in Loch Ness, who was collecting these sightings. Anyway, that was often purported to have these red glowing eyes, almost like a Mothman type creature, really, based around that time. It seems to be an odd feature. And I often wondered, would you know, being able to produce your own light if you're a nocturnal creature? Surely that has some sort of you know, uh, evolutionary benefit. Um, and is that what we're looking at? And when the ancients or the people of forebears saw these features, well, that's like hellfire, isn't it? The wolf had a hellfire in its eyes. And as you say, oh, dots of fire, you know, pinpricks of fire. And yet we may live long enough to, to have the discovery and find out what actually is this biological creature, specialized to hunt and feed and live at night, has adapted somehow and has these very beneficial features. And that, that always tweaks my interest. And um, even with ghost stories and the rest of it, I always try to think, what natural explanation could this, could this have really that... Uh, and not just to limit myself to natural explanation, because that's a prejudice in itself, right? Um, those are blinkered uh, views in themselves. But what explanation could there be, dog man? Right. Okay, do we have any creature that could have come from a dog? Is it an ape of some kind um, that has a pronounced snout? Or you mentioned a sloth-like uh, appearance to some this, this recent sighting. Is it a giant sloth that's a nocturnal creature that essentially up close to a stranger at night could look like a, a big wolf. Some people have even mentioned kangaroos, loose kangaroos. If you see one of those in the middle of New York state at night, <laughs> that would give you a fright. A big well, I, kangaroo. I can, I can remember back in the seventies, we had some kangaroo sightings in New Jersey, mm. which uh, was pretty unusual. You know, with the red eyes, I'm one of the slides that I, I use at uh, at my talks is the one by Janet and Colin Board. The book Alien Animals is their uh -huh. cover, and it's got all the different cryptological, cryptozoological creatures. They all had the red glowing eyes. Right. You know? So I, I love that that uh, that cover, and you know I I think at this point as a researcher, my primary focus is to take down the information as accurately as possible, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't seem to fit, and to not try to draw conclusions, but to just report and document. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been doing for the better part of, you know, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and the funny thing is, like I said, this layering effect, when you look at something that looks like it's going to be a straightforward creature sighting, and then you have, uh, gee, the, one of the witnesses had a poltergeist outbreak within a day of the sighting. Uh, wow. They had the big bird sighting and things like that. It kind of points in a different direction that there's mm. something else going on here. And, you know, maybe we'll never fully understand it. Maybe it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, some of the research that's being done right now, like at Skinwalker Ranch, mm -hmm. pretty fascinating stuff.
And we may be on the edge of a, a new concept with uh, quantum physics and, uh, you know, things that seemed impossible years ago don't seem all that off uh, base now. Yeah, and we're, we're starting... definitely um, in, in a stage in technological discovery that makes the, the, the impossible seem generic, general. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot more plausibility now with the yeah. with the you know quantum physics and discovery of dark matter and and you know there's a lot more doors that are being opened mm. now and you listen to people like Muchio Kaku uh, you know talk about uh, you know uh, quantum entanglement and it just blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, that that generally <laughs> tends to confuse me, but but you know it's outside of my scope. Of interest, generally speaking. Now, what I'm most interested in about cryptozoology, actually, that I've been following the creature sightings all of my life. I'm 44 years old, and so, you know, reasonably young teenager. I was following, collecting every sighting I could get a hold of. But what interests me more these days, since um, my sort of crash test dummy um, descent into career cryptozoology, <laughs> is, uh, is the psychology of belief the psychology of um fandom you know and all of the uh, um attributed um how can i put it all of the attributes that that people latch onto and we, we spoke about it a little bit earlier and sometimes and i think that some of the uh, veracity of uh, of rebuttal and refutation and arguments and the tribalism that goes on. It is very belief centered, but it also seems to be um, filling some sort of religion's shaped hole. Now, that's not to say that everybody should have religion, but then that was once all of our society, and now we don't have it. There's lots of holes left. And you know, if you believe in Bigfoot, I mean, I posted the other day just as a bit of a taunt. Um, I don't know if you remember the film Salem's Lot, the original film. Love it. I love it too. And there's yeah. a scene where he puts the, um, the two uh, tongue compressors into a cross and he places it down on Marjorie Glick's forehead. And yeah. there's, a, there's a gif, there's a gif online where she's just steaming. And uh, I just posted my reaction. Everybody tells me every time somebody tells me they believe in Bigfoot. And uh, I, I, I received some major kickback about that for about six or seven days and I deserved <laughs> it because I put it out there and somebody said to me I thought you researched Bigfoot surely you believe in Bigfoot I said I researched it and I'd love it to be true and there's lots of plausible evidence but I don't believe in it right it's not my religion and that was the point I was just kind of prodding a little bit and saying come on let's think about the way we look at these things and um, uh, one of the uh, big examples I like to use is when uh, Cortez, when he, he approached you know, the shores there and, um, and Moctezuma and all of the Essex, when they saw the ships coming, they, they thought they were floating mountains. And they don't look like mountains, but the mind immediately made up the most familiar uh, shape. Right. They, could, they could envision and there were these floating mountains come, coming and he imagined Cortez to be Quetzalcoatl returning you know, from the from the east, and sure enough, it led to the destruction of their society, which is not very funny, I know, but it's it's amazing how perception can really dominate how we yeah, interpret he, data. 
human perception definitely mm. plays a big role in this. And uh, I, I, I love that approach that you're talking about because mm. I come across that a lot with people who just want to believe. And this has become sort of a religion to them. And mm -hmm. I really caution against staying away from that. And, you know, you, you got to really stay with the facts and the science mm -hmm. behind it and, and record the evidence and look at it later. And, you know, a tiny detail like that red eyes didn't mm -hmm. really mean like, a, you know, make a lot of sense back then and making more sense now that there's something else going on. And, you know, if you, some researchers might take that report and not even talk about the eyes because it doesn't fit their, their uh, established uh, parameters of what mm -hmm. they feel this is. And, you know, that's, uh, that's just not science. You know, it's funny, you had mentioned belief. Uh, there was a movie back in, I think it was 76, 77 called Sasquatch. It was more mm -hmm. of an ad action adventure family type oriented film, but they had a great silhouette of a creature and in the dark forest around it and the creature standing there. And I always loved that silhouette. It was a great mm -hmm. picture. And I found a sign that had that silhouette. It was the reverse image uh, put on a metal sign. And I'm looking at it and I go, hey, that's great. But then they put, um, they put a slogan about believing on it and it just ruins the whole sign. I actually yeah. took black paint and painted it off <laughs> and the sign looks awesome now. But, oh, but uh, it's you know, your sign. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's they, great. You didn't just vandalize us. I'm like, that's not going to happen. No, no. I, that's I, going. I, that's I, going. <laughs> I, I bought this. I bought the that's sign great. and I just blacked out the, the saying. And, and first bit so I missed. Better. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Paul <laughs> Bartholomew was just going around correcting Sasquatch <laughs> signs all around the country because that, that just won't do. You can't believe no. this. Um, look, I think, um, yeah, I think it's very, very plausible. I'm... Uh, was lucky enough to, to meet Jeff Meldrum when I went to Lauren's conference in 2018. And we're all sitting around um, just basically at dinner talking about stuff. And um, somebody brought up Todd Standing. And um, I'd had, uh, I, I didn't want to mention it to him because, in fact, when I met Jeff that day in the lift, being a bit of a fanboy, I thought, oh, just be cool. Don't mention Todd standing. Whatever you do, that's your mission today. Do not mention Todd <laughs> to Jeff because I'm sure he's sick of that stuff. And I didn't. But sure enough, you know, we got to the um, the table later and we we're all eating and somebody brought it up. And I said, oh, I'm sure you don't want to talk about it. He said, no, I'm, I'm cool to talk about it. I don't mind. And I mentioned to him that I'd had uh, a friend of my wife's who was one of the head, this head of VFX for The Hobbit movie and uh, Walter Mitty and Noah and a bunch of other big Hollywood movies. So she, she understood it really well. That's her, her business. And I was to, to review the uh, discovering Bigfoot um, movie, just specifically these creatures that he presented and said, you know, you don't care about Bigfoot, but you understand effects. Can you tell me, could this be done? Could this be faked to this degree? And how would they do it? And, um, she said, yes, it could be fake, but actually looking at the first two creatures, this very blondie type creature, the, the other one they call a teddy squatch, the blinky, or whatever the other one was, she said, you, know, you can see that actually the, one, the makeup would actually have to go under the eyelids with full contact, and it would be very, very painful. Um, so that's not to say it's not fake, but whoever did it did a really good job. 
And I mentioned this to Jeff, and he said, you know, Todd's not very likable. He's not a likable guy. But I went out there with him in the woods. He was a great woodsman. I can't comment on his evidence as being real or fake. His wife, they say, is a makeup artist, but she's just a beautician. That wasn't a big believer in Todd, but I thought, yeah, you know, people's perception and actually sometimes what notable persons in this, this genre say about other people will affect the way you feel about them forever. Um, ended up writing a blog about it, which was called, I think, uh, Standing Alone, All on His Todd. <laughs> you get the, the reference. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cheesy. But um, yeah, it was interesting. But I mean, what's your take on, on that type of evidence? I feel we're stuck, like with all the Patterson gaming footage, we're almost stuck in a position where if it's too good, it can't be real. And if it's um, if it's too blobby, then of course it's just uh, it's um, inadmissible. So how do we get something that satisfies the Bigfoot community as genuine evidence, or is it dependent upon the stature of the person who presents it? Yeah, it it, it presents a real conundrum. Uh, the, the problem, you see, I used to think that maybe some hairs yeah. and a little DNA and we'd solve this and it, that became even a bigger problem. Yeah. So I'm not sure where it's going to go. I think the only way you would be able to really fully solve this would be with a body mm -hmm. and it doesn't look like there's something, there's just elements here that, that don't add up to that for me. Uh -huh. And I, I'm not sure where that's going. I'm open to everything. I would love it if tomorrow someone found a body and, you know, we hail, you know, CNN and, mm -hmm. and all the news groups and everybody has an independent study of it. But it seems like there's something else going on here. And I don't know exactly how to how, how we really explain that away. There's definitely a human perception going on here, uh -huh. uh, uh, an element. Uh, that has a uh, uh, commonalities uh, of human perception. And I don't know if we're ever going to have that day. Mm. It, uh, you know, where I'm much more at ease with something like the catamount, you know, mm -hmm. that's not supposed to exist in this area as being a physical flesh and blood creature. This has elements to it that bother me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wish it wasn't that way. Yeah. It'd be a lot easier if it wasn't. As a researcher, my job is to lay it out, and uh, you know that's the way it is. Well, you do it wonderfully, and it, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to, to get your your take on the whole thing. Uh, just before we finish up, it, is there somewhere where people can find you? Are you attending conferences? If there are any conferences this year, eventually, some point in the future, any documentaries, anything coming up? Yeah, um, well, uh, we have a, a festival in the fall here in Whitehall. And that's in, in uh, the last week of September, the last Saturday in September. And test of my knowledge, we're still on schedule, but you know, obviously with the pandemic, things has been pushed back and altered. So I don't know what that says. As far as I know, it's still on. That's one of the, the festivals. We have a yearly festival and they call it the festival. And what happens at the end of the, you know, we have uh, presentations and there's a lot of fun and, and out, do their Bigfoot call. And oh, wow. <laughs> then, uh, you know, they present a winner. And so it's kind of, it became kind of a fun event and ESPN came and covered it one time and stuff. 
So uh, that would be in, in, uh, in uh, the last week of September, if it's still on. Other than that, uh, you know, we've got a book, uh, my brother and I have coming out, an atlas on mysteries of the, the Northeast here. Uh, wow. on various phenomena from the La Cabana type incidents to various creature incidents and so forth. And it really shows the, the broad array of Fortean type phenomena in this region. It's more like an, uh, a brief atlas as opposed to an in-depth uh, study. And, and you get to see, you know, an introduction to the various phenomena that have been going on in this region. Uh, so, you know, we're just plowing away and, and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, we just continue to collect information. We're always collecting information and reports. Uh, the phenomena that occurs with the, the Bigfoot phenomena is definitely a consistent pattern of mm -hmm. sightings it, that goes back to the Algonquin and the Iroquois to modern day, including sightings that happened in January of this year. So wow. the sightings continue. And even though they aren't reported, because nowadays with social media, it used to be, you know, I'm, I've been around this a long time, mm. just as you have. And it used to be you had to go to the archives and go through microfiche. <laughs> oh, my God. Your eyes, you had to go just about blind. And, and, you know, you would go through news clipping yeah. services. And so that's where I'm coming from. That's what these filing cabinets mm. behind me are full of newspaper clips and, and reports. And the, the thing is that nowadays it's different. It's immediate and it's social media reporting mm -hmm. it. And there isn't that, there's drawbacks too. There isn't that uh, large number of clippings and sightings uh, reported in papers anymore. It's reported differently now. So well, do you think that makes it harder to verify? Because before, if it went to the papers, you had to make that step to go public. Yeah. Whereas yeah, now you just have to click a button and say, I saw something on a Facebook page and you go through the rigmarole of finding out and oftentimes it's very very good and sometimes not so much yeah I, i'm not sure if it's better or not but it's different yes. it's a completely different uh way to report things now and coming from that era of microfiche and, and newspaper clips to the social media mm -hmm. today it's you know i see drawbacks and positives i can get to a sighting much quicker and mm -hmm. I think that's a huge positive, but you don't have that anchor base of information. You just have sort of maybe an intangible report mm -hmm. without all that information that's already in, in existent print. So, yeah, there's, you know, you can look at it both ways, I suppose. Yeah. It's just the way it is, unfortunately. I was just thinking when you said that shorter, but longer in a way, <laughs> um, because you have to verify more. But then again, how would you check out the microfiche at this point in time? You couldn't leave the house. Right. And go and do it. At least That's you can right. do everything from your home or from your phone. Um, I'll say goodbye to you, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. I mean, Scott's been telling me for ages, you have to speak to Paul. You have to speak to Paul. And I'm really glad I did. Pleasure to meet you. Oh, it's, it's been a great pleasure talking with you and hope to talk to you again sometime. Take care. Bye. Take care.